class uh, at Covenant Seminary, and uh, but we're in Rivers and Lakes together. I'm excited to be able to present with him. I, I feel like this is part of like our Covenant ethos here, where we do a little team teaching, a little dialogue here, so you get to see a little bit about what we're what we're doing. Um, so David's going to uh, go ahead and uh, pray, talk about the Old Testament uh, in a controlled sample, looking at uh, one of the Psalms, and I'm going to pick up in the New Testament in Acts. So beautiful. Uh, let's pray together. Holy Father, you make known to us the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I pray, Lord, that we could taste of those, that we would see those in your word today, that we would see them in Christ, and that we might share those with our congregations, with our neighbors, that they too might see and know Christ and honor him in their hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The beauty of the church in the Old and New Testaments. So if you were here for the earlier uh, discussions, you would have heard from Professor Glodo and from uh, Dr. Scott uh, Red. I think I'm getting his name correctly. Uh, he, uh, if you would have heard both of those talks, you would have no question in your mind today about whether or not there was a church in the Old Testament. So if that's a question that remains in your mind, I would invite you to purchase one of these at a very low cost on Amazon and uh, read through it, look through some of these articles. Uh, but let's start with that assumption that the people of God, old and new, is one people uh, bound uh, in, in one covenant of grace uh, and looking to Christ alone for salvation ultimately. But uh, let's go ahead and if you'd flip to the next slide as we get going, I want to ask, what do you see when you go to church? Because when we get to Psalm 48, which was my focus for my paper, when we get to Psalm 48, we're, we're, we're thinking about what we see when we experience the liturgy. And this was an Old Testament liturgy, I suppose. Uh, but uh, we're, we're going to be thinking uh, broadly about what we see and experience when we go to church. And I start out with this quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters, where the, the elder tempter Screwtape is writing to Wormwood. And he is actually uh, chastising him here in chapter 2 because his patient has become a Christian. And he says, don't worry, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily, oily expression on his face. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily upon these neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Before we go in to the Old Testament and, and, and particularly into Psalm 48, and think about what we see in worship, I want you to think about how the demons may want us to see things in worship. What are the things that we fixate upon? What are the things we're afraid that our people will fixate upon? The, the people that we're afraid that they'll talk to on a Sunday morning. You know, the, the, the bad coffee that you've, you've been lobbying for better coffee and you don't want them to taste the bad coffee. What are the things you're afraid people will fixate upon? 
And what are the things that we should actually be cultivating a new sort of vision, a faith sort of vision, in ourselves and in our people so that they might see the fullness of God in His people? If you could go to the next slide. We're going to see as we, as we shift between Old and New uh, Testaments today, between Aaron and I, we're going to see a shift in the way that the covenant is administered, the way worship is experienced, and this comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, and if somebody doesn't have a mouthful of food right now, would somebody volunteer to read 7.5? This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law, and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinance, ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews all for signifying Christ to come. Wonderful, wonderful. So we have uh, all of these promises, these, these, these types, these patterns, these uh, wondrous, uh, and uh, as we're going to see, outwardly glorious elements in worship. But things are going to change uh, in some ways under the gospel. And would somebody read 7-6? Under the gospel, in Christ the substance was exhibited. The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which through fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, <coughs> yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual episode. Wonderful. So, uh, we're going to see a shift in the way worship is experienced between a Psalm 48 kind of worship experience, between a, a Leviticus 16 worship experience, and other kinds of experiences that we have today in the Gospel. They are of uh, less outward glory and greater simplicity, and yet, uh, in them, the fullness of Christ is held forth. And in them, in the Word, and in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we experience Christ and we are encountering God in this amazing way uh, that, that we have the privilege of encountering. And, and people also, as 7-6 goes on, people of all nations are, are enabled by grace to encounter this. If you go to the next slide. I want us to, to do a little work together. I'm going to divide the room briefly. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles up here and I'll help pass them out. But you're going to need a Bible or if you have one on your phone. But if you are right here in this section... Uh, and, and Harry and Patty, you can be together if you'd like. Uh, Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5. And I, wanna, I want you to think about what you see in worship. What you see in worship. Think about uh, the, the priest that you see there. The way he is, is robed. Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 5. And you can read the next verses as well about the Day of Atonement. Uh, if you're in this section, look up Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 5. I want you to think about what you see and experience in worship if you're an Old Testament Israelite. If you are in this section, roughly right here, if you're on the edges and you don't know what to look up, just choose one. But if you're in this section right here, look up 1 Kings 6. You have more to look up, uh, but you can deal with it. 1 Kings 6, read about the temple and its glory. Uh, and then in this section right here, Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. A short little passage you can read for a little more context around there. But think about 
the longings that some of us have for the, the glory days of past, and you'll see the longings there as well as that second temple was being founded. So, uh, look at those. You're going to have uh, three minutes, three minutes to look at these, to consider these right now. And if I see everyone looking at me and feeling awkward, I'll, I'll move us along. If you've had a chance to at least scan 1 Kings 6, you're, you have the longest passage. If you've had at least a chance to do that, everybody else has had a chance to read, turn to a neighbor that's close to you, share something that you saw, share the best thing that, that, that popped out of, uh, of the text, uh, and, and what is the thing that you saw in worship if you were an Old Testament Israelite. Turn to someone near you. Ten seconds and we're coming together. All right, we're going to start over here. Uh, go ahead and internalize the best that you got uh, out of that uh, brief encounter with the scripture. Uh, what's something over here, what's something that you saw uh, when you looked to Exodus 28, uh, verses 1 through 5? The glorious beauty of priestly garments. Nobody else would have looked like this. Yeah, uh, they're, they're made for, for glory, uh, it says. This is something, I, I'm going to ask questions as we go, uh, as, as we think about what people see when they come to church. Uh, my mom uh, still pretty well dresses me, you know. You look so thin, you know, and so she gets me, whatever. But anyway, uh, she doesn't sound like that. But uh, she, uh, she, she gives me nice clothes, and I think about the people who are my immediate neighbors, and many of them don't have access to these kinds of clothes. We think of Christ who's come, and uh, he, our great high priest, was robed in the common poverty of his neighbors. Uh, and yet, should we be showing forth, should the people see 
uh, Christ in his humiliation in our garb? Or, or should they see Christ in, in his exaltation in our garb? Or is there a season for all of these things? I don't know. We can keep thinking about that. But let's, uh, uh, let's keep moving along thinking about Leviticus 16. So Leviticus, uh, I, I kind of said, uh, well, to some degree, we wouldn't have seen any of what is in Leviticus because only Aaron the high priest could go into the holy place. So we just kind of had to take his word for it. And uh, I'm not going in there. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? Oh, we would have seen the sacrifices, right? We talked about animals. Yes. I don't know. I just got Yeah. But I was even thinking of the the mercy seat as well, and what was above the mercy seat, the glory of God. Yes. Holy cow. Yes. Yes. And to think of the glory of God in that moment, so powerfully manifested. And then think of today as we regularly minister the Lord's Supper to our people and together. And Christ said, this is my body. This is my blood. The great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies, not by the means of the blood of bulls or goats. You you saw that Aaron and the priest had to be atoned for first on the Day of Atonement. But Christ entered in not not uh, by the, the blood of any sacrifice, but by uh, a, a perfect and pure conscience and by the Spirit. In Hebrews 9 it says, and, and that He is present with us on a Sunday morning. We think about presence as a, as, a, as a great desire to know the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and feel that incredible experience. And yet it's here consistently for us every time we gather around the table. Uh, next passage as we keep going, First Kings. Now it's about the glorious phenomenal structure. Yes. Built to glorify God. And when I personalize that, it incredibly humbles me because we are now the dwelling place of our Lord. Amen. And I am nowhere near as magnificent or glorified. Yes. And when we read Psalm 48 in a moment, Imagine that. Imagine that opulence and that glory and the gold and the cedar and the, and, and the calyxes and the, the, the things pointing us back to Eden and forward to new creation. All of these, these beautiful symbols and types. Uh, all of that passing away and now in, in New Covenant worship as we'll, we'll experience in a, in a little bit with Aaron. Uh, we're, we're experiencing something so much more simple and, and oily-faced grocers and, and the neighbors we'd rather avoid is where Christ's presence is made known. Yes? I mean, it's, it's remarkable that the most private secret place was the most glorious. And it's a kind of a challenge as we think of ourselves. Is my most private secret place the most glorious place for God? Amen. Amen. We are a temple. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, over here now, Ezra. There was grief over the, the the older people were grieving that the building is gone, the beautiful building that they had, and and they've got a new foundation and they're happy about that, but there's so there was wailing and cheering at the same time, but uh, I I saw it as it was about the building. Yeah, so the, the, they mourn for that that memory. But think, we're going to be reading Psalm 48 here in just a moment all together. Uh, but think about, about the sights that, that were seen 
by those who sang this song uh, when it was first ministered uh, and when it was first sung in, in, in temple worship. Uh, think about the memories that, that were made there. Think about the memories that you have in your church growing up and how us crazy millennials are changing everything. And maybe you mourn a little bit of that. You might know a little bit of that. And maybe we should not totally discount that grief that they feel. It's very human, a very real grief for something good and beautiful. But nonetheless, it says that they, they went on to rejoice, and when the temple is finished, all the people rejoiced at what had been accomplished. And um, sadly, one day that temple too would be destroyed, but we have a new temple that we can look to. But if you would with me, uh, I, I'm not going to invite you to read instead I'm going to invite you to hear. I'm going to read basically my paper. If you want to, to, to look into it, I argue for a certain reading of Psalm 48, 15, uh, that uh, it, it, it says very... Uh, dramatically that when we look at the temple courts, when we look at this amazing complex that is made with hands and yet where God meets His people in the Holy of Holies, that it says that we are to recount to a coming generation that this, imagine me pointing at the temple, this is God, our God forever and ever. He shall lead us over death. Here's Psalm 48. If you'd listen with me, this is the Holy Word of God. It's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and very worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful elevation, rejoicing of all the earth. Mount Zion, remote parts of the north, town of the great king. God is in her citadels. He is known for a stronghold. For behold, the kings have gathered. They have crossed over together. They saw. Thus they were astounded. They were disturbed. They hurried in alarm. Trembling has seized them there, writhing like childbirth. With an east wind, you shatter the ships of Tarshish. Just as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God shall establish her forever. We have thought, O God, of your steadfast love within your temple. Like your name, O God, so your song is over the ends of the earth. Righteousness fills your right hand. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice on account of your judgments. Go around Zion and surround her. Count her towers. Place upon your hearts her ramparts. Pass through her citadels in order that you all should recount to a coming generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He shall lead us over death. So what do you see? Imagine the people of God gathered for worship. It's a, it's a sacramental worship led with, with priests robed in glory. It's got the smells and the sights of sacrifice. It's, it's got opulence and glory all around. If you are a, a second temple Jew, there's, there's some hints of mourning for something that was in the past and a hope for something that might yet one day come. What do you see when you see your fellow uh, worshipers and this worshiping space, you see God, it says. God is, is present. And here's, here's the, the simple thing that I'm going to, to leave us with uh, as I prepare to, to, to pass it off to Aaron as we think about what, what does this matter for us today? Well, as, as we've already been uh, alluding to in the New Covenant, we, we find that all of these types that we've talked about are, are reaching their fulfillment and their climax in Christ. And so, 
As we as Christians appropriate Psalm 48, we need to see that when we see the oily face grocer, there's no more temple now. The oily face grocer is where we see the fullness of God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. That the church, which is the fullness of God, this is what we have come to now. The real Zion is what we have come to, as it says in Hebrews. So, uh, if that's the case, I, I want to ask us, do we need, do we need more than the, the simplicity offered to us in Christ in order to manufacture some sort of presence of God? Do we need something else, or do we need what God has actually given us? Think about the Temple Mount. It wasn't quite as impressive as the idealization of the psalm says. It's not the highest mountain in the area. It's not really even a mountain. It's a hill. But we have this idealized vision of faith that we see the place of God's activity, His redemptive activity in the midst of His people. We see that God is present there. And we want to tell the next generation that God is right here, that you can experience here, Him here, and that I myself experience grace right here. Did we experience it because there were lowered lights and better music? Well, I'm not going to say that those things are bad, but I'm saying, where do we actually encounter God? I'm suggesting to you it's in, it's in the simple means of grace, that it's in the preaching of the Word, that it's in, it's in the, the fulfillment of that sacrifice. There's no longer sacrifice of thank goodness. We don't have a stinky hot mess every Sunday morning. We have, we have Christ's mediated presence and His promises in the Lord's Supper. And we see our children baptized and sealed with covenant promise. And we remember and we tell the next generation that God has met us here. Aaron is going to take us into the next covenant with uh, Acts. Hello. Um, so uh, I'm going to read Acts 16 to 16 to 18. Um, so uh, next, do you, do you have that journal, David? Um, yeah, sorry, brother. So uh, I have another uh, co editing another book with uh, Craig Evans, who you might be familiar with. And uh, so you see that there's some good contributions there. That's I kind of moonlighted as a scholar, have a PhD in from uh, Bristol uh, in England. And um, so, anyhow, we have that. And just so you're aware, I. Yep. My, uh, I get two. Like the president. Um, and next year, uh, as well, my dissertation, which is on the minor prophets quoted in, in Acts, it'll be published as well. Uh, I'm not advertising that because it'll be in Braille and it'll be $150, and no, none of you will want to buy it. Uh, it's kind of a snoozer. But um, uh, nevertheless, I, um, I, I appreciate where David's coming from because he's kind of hitting the reset button, kind of like I was hoping to do uh, when I was uh, considering this this theme that um, this theme that. Uh, <laughs> thank you, deputy. Um, are we got that? 
Actually, he does a lot of work for us. Uh, this is great for the society. So thanks, Brandon. Um, so I was considering the local church, and 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 this has been a, a live issue for me as I as I um, uh, take up a new call. Um, and this is not awkward at all. Uh, I take up a new call, and I've been there for a year, and and I start interacting with my session, and we start talking about reformed and 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 um, Presbyterian uh, ways of doing things, and we start uh, looking around our session meetings, and we start looking around our church, and we start realizing that even the most basic question of what is church is is really a difficult question to ask because uh, we have so many forces outside of uh, well, just me preaching every week. I mean, that's that's a good opportunity. I mean, you think about that really. Uh, where where do people go every week to go hear a public lecture? Basically, I mean, I understand it's preaching the word and being crass on purpose, but uh, you know, they're hearing you every week, so you have a real opportunity there. But they're still being influenced by outside forces uh, on what church is. And um, so, so I was thinking to myself with my background in in the Book of Acts, uh, specifically two, seven, thirteen, and fifteen, and then I wanted to kind of broaden this a little bit and look a little bit more into what Acts is saying. I thought, you know, this might be a simple question, kind of take uh, Dave Moore over there, uh, uh, representing his South Charleston there. He's one of my elders, and his, his, uh, his uh, saying is always, I like to keep the cookies on the lowest shelf. I think that's a great idea. So when Dave preaches, it's, it's you know, it's accessible, and I, and I like that. And that's my challenge, because I've been uh, screwed up by doing uh, PhD research, and so I'm, I'm constantly trying to um, get back there. So I, I wanted to ask a simple question, just, uh, uh, hey, Luke. Like if we had the opportunity to get get with Luke, uh, Luke, what what's church? Tell us what church is, okay? And 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 that might be a question I pose to you. Uh, um, just throw out some some things. You know, what is church? Anybody? You guys uh you guys want to talk? Come on. What is church? Community. Community. Okay. Prayer. Prayer. God's people together. Body of Christ. So when, if we'd shift our, so we're, we're thinking through what is church. Uh, maybe you think about um, when, when you're coming into your gathering, what, what are some misperceptions of what church is? Can you, I mean, let's not be too harsh, but you know, what, what are some misperceptions of what church is? Buildings, and it, buildings? okay. Concert. Yeah. Concert, yeah, okay. <laughs> programs might be one of them. I mean, a church has to have really good programs and a, and a steady staff. Um, What's that? Where I meet my friends. Okay, that's a that's a good one actually. Yeah, or a social club. I heard that. Yeah, yeah, good. So what do I get out of? What do I get out? Oh man, yes, absolutely. And and I have to work against that. I mean, I I um uh, I love to preach God's word, uh, and uh, but I also love that my elders want a shepherd, and uh, so I love to have them preach. Not so I get a week off, but so that they're shepherding my, my people. But I have to really, um, you know, go to the people and say, listen, when, when, my, uh, my, when your elders are preaching, it doesn't mean this is a week off for you and you don't come because, you know, Pastor Aaron's not preaching. So, you know, it's because uh, they have that mentality. What, what am I getting out of this? Uh, but then, you know, I mean, what, what is church? What, what do you think the Bible saying church is? Just New Testament. What is church saying? Uh, what are they saying about church in the New Testament? Gathering the saints on the Lord's Day, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
Good. Okay, fine. He's the head of it. That's right. Good. Yeah. So, so when I when I came to the Book of Acts, uh, what I wanted to do is I really I really wanted to uh, not not do a historical study on Acts. I'm kind of giving you the backstory because I, you all can read, and so it's 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 in here. So I'm just going to highlight some things. You can get the backstory. Um, I wanted to isolate some things. So first, I was like, okay, so what are what are words that Luke is using to just talk about gatherings in general? Like, I'm not even talking about uh, believers, but this we're talking about a Middle Eastern culture, and gatherings happen a lot. You see this on the news. Like, very rarely in America do you see people mob the streets and protest, right? Um, well, you see it from time to time, but it's very, very organized. But in, the, in more of a Middle Eastern culture, it can just rise up out of nowhere, and there's actually a word for that in the Greek. The, uh, there's several different words that I came across where people would just crowds would form. So I wanted to go look at what are some of these gathering words. What, what are some of the gathering words? So we get, we get all kinds of uh, uh, nouns and verbs, but one that was interesting to me that I want to draw your attention to was actually an anti-gathering word. I'm going to get there. So it's an anti-gathering word. It's uh, diaspiro. You might know this word because of diaspora, <coughs> the dispersion. Uh, and that's, a, that's an interesting word because um, uh, we go back to Acts 1.8 and we see really the thesis statement of Acts. Uh, no longer will the land be this sliver that's the size of Rhode Island and no longer will the Lord be the Lord of cultural Israel, or however we want to put that, and, you know, and, and, and so on. But we're going to what? Concentrically reach out, right? We could say that Acts is actually structured by Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Actually, in, in my dissertation, I argued that the minor prophets are, are marking those, those, those moments in redemptive history. And, and, and you watch what's happening there. And, and, and I love this interaction that uh, Jesus has with his disciples. These guys, uh, they're getting it. Acts 1, uh, 1 8, they're like, Jesus, we, we get you. You're the Messiah. And you're probably even more than that. <coughs> I mean, they really get that when the Holy Spirit's poured out, right? Um, we, we get that. So, so when are you going to bring in your kingdom? So they totally get it, but they totally still don't at all. He's like, no, no, no. You don't need to know the time, but wait here, right? Remember, he says, wait here. Wait till you're sent out. But this word uh, diaspora, we're, we're so used to being uh, used with reference to, to Jewish people, right? Well, the only times it's used in Acts, it's, it's in reference to early Christians. Well, they weren't Christians yet because Christians weren't really, that wasn't coined until Acts 13 in Antioch. Um, uh, which Antioch, Pisidian Antioch is where we believe Luke's from, which I think is really interesting because Luke's like whole case of certainty that Jesus is Lord over all people, multinational. Uh, that happens for the first time in Pisidian Antioch. And so Luke's like, hey, this happened in my hometown, right? Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, but this is applied to Christians. And this right there at the end of Acts 7 is the end of the Jerusalem mission done, over, closed. Full stop. It's sent out. Who's there? Saul's there. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Saul's there. Saul is at the first break in the story, or the first movement forward, we could say. Um, and, and, and he's dispersing the church. He's dispersing the church. But what a, why, this is, why this is so interesting is the church is dispersed, but yet then gathered. 
Uh, let me uh, let me open up here real quick. The church is dispersed at whose uh, gets stoned. Stephen gets stoned, right? He gets stoned. I put this here. Um, what is especially compelling about the uses in chapter eight? Chapter eleven implies the same, though not ex uh, explicitly as eight. Is that we see that the scattering that is the opposite of gathering, from Jerusalem results in the gathering around the word in other places. To me, this appears, to, uh, appears like a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy from 1-4, Acts 1-4, and an intentional revision of the early Jewish use of diaspora by Luke with the scattering of the true laos, or people of God, among the nations. So God uses this persecution, which of course our, our, our GAs have been rich with this year. Uh, he uses this persecution to send out missionaries into Judea, right? The miraculous thing is that the, the next gathering, really the next movement of God's redemptive history, is uh, into Samaria in Acts 13. And who's preaching in Acts 13? Anyone remember? It's actually two speeches. One, one more chance. I hear Peter. Thank you. Paul. Yeah, so Paul scatters the church at the end of the Jerusalem mission into Judea, and now is gathering the church in the dispersed area in Acts 13. And then you come into Acts 15, and Paul's standing there actually pretty conspicuously quiet. I think that's on purpose. I think James and Peter are like, hey, Paul, best thing you can do right now is just don't say much. Don't say much, because people are really suspicious of this whole Gentile thing that's going on. Really suspicious. It's actually uh, in, in Acts 13 uh, when Paul's preaching. Uh, how did the Jews, you know, Jews and God fears and God fears and proselytes, kind of an imprecise term. I, I, I traced it through uh, the Jewish literature and it just continues to mean something different. Um, but we call them God fears in, in Acts 13. So you have these Gentiles who have uh, kind of pledged allegiance to the synagogue and the law. So you have them and the Jewish people in the diaspora. What's their response when uh, Paul preaches the gospel? Is it positive or negative? negative? No, it's absolutely positive. It's a warm response. It's like, this is great. Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Come back. Tell us more next week. And so he does, right? You, you come back to that. Like a whole city shows up. Whole city shows up. Well, that, and that implies to me that there's people there that are, are gathering that are uncircumcised or are not law-abiding God-fearers, what's the reaction then? Negative. So now I was reading John Calvin on this. Sorry to do this in the Westminster Society, but he's wrong. Um, I should take him up in my, my dissertation. He actually spun off a pretty uh, a steady uh, uh, tradition in evangelical commentary. Evangelical commentary is great. Uh, Bob Yarbrough uh, at Covenant Seminary is one of my mentors. And it, he says, uh, if you're going to pick up a new evangelical commentary, you could also just pick up Calvin because the, the comment really hasn't progressed all that much since then, um, which, is, which is fantastic because he writes commentaries too, so he, I mean, it's, it's at his own cost. But um, so he's uh, Calvin says, well, the, the the Jewish people were upset that he that he was saying that Jesus is Lord, and I said, well, no, actually, they were pretty happy about that. 
They were upset because he was saying Jesus is Lord over uncircumcised Gentiles. And so when we get to Acts 15, which is only two chapters later, but likely a, uh, actually about, I don't know, between 10 and 20 years. I mean, so Luke's like moving the storyline. You think Luke Acts is long? It could be much, much longer. Uh, he's really moving the storyline along to get to Acts 15, where suddenly they are doing what? They're gathered together and they're exegeting what? Scripture. It's an easy question. Scripture. They're always gathering around the word preached. They're gathering together. They're hearing each other charitably. I mean, I, you can only imagine, like you, you hear some of the debates we have here. Uh, sometimes we can get a little, have that icky feeling like, ooh, I don't really like what that guy's thinking. Or can you imagine like letting Gentiles in uncircumcised? Well, you can't really because you weren't there and you're not Jewish, but that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. There's, there's no, uh, I'll tell you a little story. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, a Campus Crusade uh, volunteer, and then I was on staff, but I was leading an action group. That's our leadership group. And I was trying to explain this to them. I said, I said, this would be a lot like if Christians found that, I was trying to think of the most scandalous thing. If we found the tomb of Jesus, uh, I kid you not, like two months later, remember that whole ossuary of Jesus thing came out? And I'm like, I am never making an analogy again. Um, but I'll, I'll draw you back to Craig Evans. He actually writes a lot of good stuff about how that's all just, it's bunk. But anyhow, so back to the point. So we get to Acts 15. They're gathering around the word being preached. James is exegeting this. And it is, he is exegeting the Septuagint, the Greek translation. He's, he's not, he's not uh, exegeting uh, the Masoretic text as we have it, the Hebrew scriptures. Some people are like, well, he probably had uh, Hebrew and Greek in front of him. Richard Balcom says that. I, I, I respect the heck out of Richard Balcom. He's, uh, like, he's why I'm studying this. But that would be a lot like me coming up to the pulpit and having my ESV and my NA28 in front of me and reading a little bit out of my NA28 and expecting anybody's going to like that or understand it. So if he would have been reading Hebrew, it would have been like whew, right over their head. So he's, he's exegeting the Greek text. And, and, and that's really important because uh, this, this text is being exegeted, and right at the end, uh, what some people think is Isaiah 45, 21, he says, and this, this, uh, that has just happened in your midst is as it's always been. People are like, well, that's an allusion to Isaiah 45, 21. I said, no, it's not. It's actually just a principle of prophecy. Uh, the, the prophet's role was to, not to say anything essentially new. Uh, that, that's a foundational prophecy. We use prof prophecy completely wrong often where I'm going to receive a prophecy. Well, no, 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 no. He's reaching back to Deuteronomy in this blueprint and saying this is prophecy. If you look at Luke Timothy Johnson, he would say the speakers in Acts are prophets. I think it's really compelling. I think it's good. Um, so James is a prophecy. And what he's saying, I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you're reading Acts, but Acts does not quote scripture ever again after Amos 9, except for right at the end when he's wrapping it up. No scripture. In Acts 17, Paul quotes, anybody? Poets. Poets. Yeah. He quotes poets as like an analogy to say, hey, this is a lot like this redemptive story. We have common ground here. Um, but no scripture, because why? Because prophecy has been fulfilled. It's done. It's closed. 
Jesus is now actually and recognized by the church the Lord over all people. We're gathered together. We believe that we are sending out what now? The Gentile mission. And then you get the apostolic decree, which is probably one of the most bizarre, confusing, weird things in Acts. I wrote an article about it in a Biblical Theology Bulletin, so you can look at that if you want to, because I can really get into it, because I think it's a hospitality statement. But, but what he's saying again, he's saying, well, if, if Jesus is in fact, if we are gathered under the lordship of Jesus, and he is actually the multinational lord, multi-ethnic lord, uh, then the land no longer is a sliver. The people is no longer this ethnic Israel, or however we want to talk about that. Uh, so uh, the temple no longer is the temple, right? There's a really important point in Amos 9 and Acts 15. It's not the temple that will be rebuilt of David. It's the tent of David or the booth of David because it's movable. It's all over. It's not a fixed place where we maintain God, because that was the problem. The temple in and of itself wasn't the problem. It was how we viewed the temple. Not we, but the Jewish people, and that's what Stephen's saying in Acts 7. So, so, uh, so if that's true, then we need to go back to Leviticus uh, 17 through 19 and say, law of the resident alien says, if somebody comes onto our turf, we take absolute care of them. Maybe we could talk to our politicians about that a little bit. Um, we, we take care of them. We take care of them. But while they're here, they, they need to follow some cleanliness rules because, because they can actually spiritually pollute the temple and the land by doing certain things. So then fast forward, since that's the blueprint, and now we're, now we're in Acts, and this is all being fulfilled. The building's being built now. Um, we, we get into Acts uh, 15, and we get these bizarre strangle stuff, drink blood, sexual immorality. What's all this about? You know, well, it's about this. Well, if the land's no longer a sliver, and it's Acts 1.8, it's all of God's land, and the temple's not the temple, you're the temple, well then, you can pollute the world and your temple anywhere, at any time. But you as Gentiles, according to the blueprint, i.e. Uh, Leviticus, the law, Remember, the Bible's always just exegeting the law. There's, there's nothing new coming out here. It's always just exegeting the law. It's always just pulling the law forward. Uh, you Gentiles are not required to be circumcised. Paul just totally gets into this. That was great. I just looked right at you, Paul, when I said that. Paul just totally, that Paul can get into it, I'm sure, too. But, um, uh, so so he's, he's talking about this uh, through the fact that like, you don't need to be circumcised. But you do need to follow these laws because you can pollute yourself, God's people, God's gatherings. Really important stuff there. Um, I was riffing there for a little while. I I'm, I'm kind of lost my, lost my way. How are we on? 115? We have 15 minutes. Good. Um, okay. So, that, that was, so I looked at words of gathering. And then um, I, that's where I started. So then, uh, then I started looking at things that gathered people and so on and so forth. That, that's kind of the sum of it. Um, but uh, we, when we look at Acts, I think the important thing that the, that the person who's going to Acts really just needs to remember is Acts 1-4 through 1-8. I mean, really, when you take that and you understand the structure, you, you stop getting into, you, you take it as, as a redemptive historical unfolding of, of God's plan 
then you don't say, well, gosh, you know what? Paul was healing people with rags. Should I be doing that too? Or Paul's shadow is over top of somebody. Should I be doing that? You know, you start lose, you lose the forest for the, for the trees, right? You're taking this through this redemptive historical thing that's happening. You're doing it through this redemptive historical thing. And that's why I think when you look at uh, the last half of Acts and, and you see that scripture isn't being quoted, that should be screaming at you. I mean, I think it's amazing because Luke is uh, just quoting so much scripture in the first 15 uh, chapters. And in the last half, you get kind of a perfunctory uh, um, appeal to the law when Paul feels like he's being abused uh, in front of the, the Sanhedrin. And then you get Isaiah at the end. But he's, he's saying, we're in the Gentile portion now. And if I go quote scripture to these people, it will mean nothing to them. But there's other ways that we can present the gospel. We quote the poets. And then we talk about the redemptive historical message of creation. So anyhow, there's just some, some thoughts on Acts. I think we wanted to give you some time to uh, ask questions, or did you have a plan? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a great plan. If you go to the next slide, we wanted to uh, just have an opportunity. There's a lot of things that we've opened up, old and new, uh, where we've uh, discussed things that, we, that you would have seen in worship as an Old Testament Israelite. We've discussed the gathering. Uh, and what that was like in Acts and the diaspora uh, and the inclusion of Gentiles. Uh, he's, he's giving you some new lenses to look at, at Acts through. Uh, if, uh, if, I could, if I could make one quick comment uh, to just to tie up Psalm 48 one more time, mm -hmm. is the formational aspect of, of, of worship uh, that was there. Uh, the people went through this liturgy and all the other uh, aspects of worship that we've discussed in such a way that they were they were becoming something together and they were experiencing God together and now in Christ who is our head and in whom we have our union who binds us together and makes us a body uh, when people see us increasingly by grace they see something new they see a new creation they see uh, a bride that's delighted and, and just enraptured by her, her groom they see something that's 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 new, uh, that wasn't here before, more and more. But they still see the the oily faced pastor, and uh, they, they they see their neighbor that they don't that they don't like, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I I wanted to suggest one one further application before we move, and just uh, invite questions and comments and other applications. Uh, is is as we think about what we see in worship, we I, I hope that we can see. It's important that we see one another now and again. Uh, that, uh, that we see that we are the body of Christ, that as we pass the flames or as we walk forward to the Lord's Supper, as we sing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, that we actually do that now and again, uh, that we, we have an awareness of one another, that we are the body of Christ. And there might be a temptation in the modern West to put forward the most beautiful and the most uh, affluent and have them in the front, uh, the most capable. Uh, but uh, the body of Christ includes uh, those who are not impressive, those who uh, you would probably be nervous about them. You don't know what they're going to say if they get up in front of people. Uh, you know, think about this. How can we be a church that celebrates that we truly are a, a sort of Christophany when you look not at all the fancy stuff, but when you look at us? So, I uh, think about these things, and uh, let's let's open it up for discussion. Yep. I was just going to add uh, to to what you said. You started with the the screw tape quote, 
And Lewis says something oh, very similar in uh, God in the Dock, uh, talking about being a part of the local church and having to sing hymns, which he, when he started out, he didn't like the hymns. Um, he said, but as I went on singing, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against people of different backgrounds, different outlooks, different education, and gradually my conceit began peeling off. And I realized that their hymns, which I still hated, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then it dawns on you that you aren't fit to clean those boots. <laughs> That's pretty good. Can I ask Aaron, mm. on the hospitality laws from Leviticus there in Acts 15, yeah. are you arguing for a continued application of that in the the church today or was it specific to the yeah I, I was actually trying to that, that's where I lost my train of thought um, I uh, yeah I, I would have to reread uh, what my article was but I, I think what I was I was going after is generally like uh, you get these classic interpretations of it that it's just like a perfunctory law for table fellowship you know so we can eat together you know as Peter runs into in Galatians um, or Paul tells us. Um, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall uh, for that, but uh, uh, I think that severely undermines it. Uh, I think it's actually, uh, uh, it's raising the bar really high to the point that we have to trust Jesus uh, alone for our salvation and cleanliness. I mean, we, we, those are laws required of us, but we're not going to meet them, just like any of the law. Um, it, it's, a, it's a hospitality, that's the lens that I went through, it was a hospitality thing where uh, the, the host pays the debt of the one hosted, you know, this idea. And, but the one hosted also contributes back, so you have that interaction, you know, the, the Jewish people are, are hosting the Gentiles. Right, grafting in that Luke doesn't use grafting in. That's Paul, but that's the idea. And and uh, and, and so they're hosting because they were once hosted, right? God's been hosting us since creation, and so that type of grace being poured out towards the Jewish people, are, are then they're supposed to forget that same thing. So so yes, in in a way, yeah, I know some of you might like blood pudding or something like that. It's gross, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, so there's certain certain things there, yeah, but I would say yeah, absolutely, I, because why would we say it's not required? I mean, it's, it says it is. So it wasn't just because it would have caused offense to the Jewish neighbors in that context? Well, yeah, I, I, just, I, just, I just think we, uh, we start reading it way too superficially if we start talking about offense to a certain individual because it's going right back to the law, and the law is talking about cleanliness and the, uh, uh, and the land and the temple. I mean, you see everything through land, temple, people. I mean, that's just covenantal through and through, and it's not just covenantal, it's like the law, you know, that, and that's what we're exegeting. So. Is that helpful? Yeah, thanks. Other questions? Just a comment. Um, when I think of the gathering together, I think of the synergy or synagogue. Mm -hmm. And when I think of that, I think we're gathering together in unity as one. And together as one, we are worshiping our Lord and Savior. So it's, and it's a picture of the end times when we're with him. Uh, we see them in Revelation. They're gathering together under the temple and praying. And 
it's a picture of where we will be gathered uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I was wondering, was that a <coughs> word used in the Acts that this? Like the synagogue. Sunago is, yeah. Sunago. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of soon words, like yeah. the, the coming together words, but sunago, very common word in the New Testament. I mean, it's, word, uh, it's, it's used quite a bit in Acts, but um, yeah, very common for coming together. But it's not simply used for the church. There's all kind of sunagoing sure. happening uh, of, other, of other people. I would say, though, that one, one thing that surprised me on that was that every time I saw gather, almost every time I saw gathering, at the end of the gathering, there was some type of mission. There was always a going out. I, and, and I think that that's a, I mean, I'm always talking to my congregation, I'm giving them the blessing. It's a blessing to give you the power to undergird your mission for this week. Um, and uh, I actually make them reach their arms forward so they're actually like participating. Um, but yeah, mission's happening. You gather so that you can go. Um, anyway. Yep. Yeah, uh, so this summer, for our students, uh, they're doing just kind of topical stuff, and they asked me as the pastor to talk to them about the importance of being a part of the church. So uh, if you were going to speak to a youth group about the importance of being part of the church uh, from your research, uh, what, would you, what points would you hit with them? The importance of being a part of the church. Um, I would begin that this is the place. I, so usually what I begin is personal, so pastorally. So this isn't quite a theological answer or necessarily a, a structured uh, answer in that way. But I, I would begin with the church is where I have encountered Christ. And where, uh, so uh, the church is where I was baptized, where I received promises, and where a community uh, saw that promise administered to me and has been faithful uh, imperfect but faithful in, in holding me uh, within that promise and helping me realize what that promise means and who celebrated with me as I come to a, a fullness of faith and, and celebrated the summer. Uh, so I've encountered Christ in this community. Uh, this is a, a community also because uh, we believe uh, in um, the reality of heaven and hell. This is a community with the promise uh, of, of, of heaven. We're united to Christ. And uh, he and Ed will, will see us through. But if we're not a part of this, this arc, you know, like 1 Peter 3 kind of language, if we're not a part of this arc and we're on the outside, where that, that's where the waters of judgment are. You know, baptism not only is a sign of a promise for God's people, but it's also, in, in the 1 Peter 3 sense, a sign of warning against uh, the ungodly and those outside the church who stand opposed to her. So uh, outside the church, there's just, uh, uh, you, you're, you're getting into some deep and dangerous waters. Uh, and you can be very pastoral and, you know, obvious, you know, you, you know, you, you can use all sorts of different illustrations to, to speak about that, you know, like, you know, put on the full armor of God, it's a you plural command in Ephesians, for example, and uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a lone soldier going out alone, uh, but it's, it's a y'all plural, put on the armor of God together, because the lone soldier alone is going to get picked off. I like you guys. You guys, guys. Uh, together, you know, by grace, we, uh, we're in a community that's, that's united to Christ where, uh, where there are promises, where there is a sacramental experience and the presence of the Lord and encounter, uh, where there is shared joy and shared grief, uh, you know, throughout life. You know, that's, a, that's another thing is, 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 is a teenager can't think yet. I couldn't. I'll speak in I terms. I could not as a teenager think about being 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 uh, and 
how desperately I would need people to remind me of uh, the one hope to which I'm called uh, when uh, the, the promises of retirement will look a lot more promising and when uh, you know, when I'm dying and cancer is ravaging my body, how badly I'll need to know that, that I have a resurrection hope and that that's steady and true and, uh, and that's been proclaimed throughout generations uh, and held to. Uh, so I, I think there's, uh, and, the, and the songs and the spiritual encouragement that comes in that uh, community are, are just so essential for, for a lifetime of, uh, of flourishing. So I, I, I don't know, those are some things that I would say yeah, I'd, I, I, just to add, not even add, but agree, uni union with Christ, uh, body of Christ uh, lessons I think are wonderful because I, I think uh, I think of Mr. Potato Head in uh, Toy Story, um, and I remember when Mrs. Potato Head left her eye back at Andy's uh, under his bed, and she went like this to her other eye, and she's like, oh, Andy's uh, about to leave, or you guys know, you have kids? I mean, uh, I've seen it like a thousand times, but I'm like, that doesn't work, but um, for the churches that don't encourage and exhort people to become members of the local uh, manifestation of the union or body of Christ, they're like Mr. Potato Head ahead who you know ends up on a tortilla shell and is like walking out in the uh, yeah it, it doesn't work that way it's a, you, you are you are put together you are a body an eye doesn't work outside of you know it's it's a commitment to being part of the body so I, I but I mean this as Dave knows I mean this is an active conversation we're having on session what does membership look like do we need to have membership I mean the marriage analogy just goes a long way for those who have a really low ecclesiology and would say, you don't really need to be members to be part of the body of Christ at a local church, I'm like, that's good. What would your wife think about what you just said if you said, you know, we don't really need to be married to like, you know, live together, you know? That, 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 that brings them up to speed, I feel like, oftentimes. So. Can, I, can I jump in real quick? Yes, please. Bird walking a little bit off topic, but this maybe. conversation maybe all right. Yeah. This this conversation we just had the other day. Um, so I'm not a member of my church. Uh -huh. Haven't been for many a number of decades now, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people in our church who were members come and go. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my wife's from Colorado, and she used to tell me the prairie um, the prairie uh, um, uh, culture would have an itinerant preacher come by. Mm -hmm. not, often enough so you'd have to get married when you could and that was common law marriage you'd jump a broom to show publicly we're married now apparently that's sure. good enough in Colorado um, so you can have a common law marriage and that's my that's my reference to how I am the right. church my so I just talk about I generally when I get into it because it is it's an active and very dynamic and nuanced conversation uh, I talk in terms of best practice what's best practice you know what I mean and so that's what we're always aiming at is best practice we live by grace but you know I mean because we have some very committed volunteers at our church that are not members and um, you talk to them about it come alongside of them and if they're resistant to it it's kind of like what am I going to do you know I was just going to inject a last comment on, on that and uh, just to tie back to the beauty of the church and what we see in her. If you see the beauty of the church, if you see Christ's presence in us, uh, if you see her in all that beauty, uh, as, as you might have seen an incredible beauty at one point in your past and you made some wild promises to her that you've never kept her perfectly, when you see the beauty of the church, uh, you might be drawn, and I hope you'll be drawn, to, to, to make some wild promises that you keep imperfectly. 
And, uh, That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you would stand with me, uh, let's sing just uh, two verses. And if you don't know it, it's okay. You can be like C.S. Lewis, who didn't like the, the, the song. Uh, but uh, the church is one foundation. If you'll just join me in singing the first and last verse, I'll try to remember the words if you'll help me remember them. So. The church is one foundation.